Well, good evening and uh, welcome to the Centre for Independent Studies. It's great to see you here today during the silly season. My name is Tom Switzer. I'm the Executive Director here at CIS. And welcome to what I think is our fourth last event for 2018. And what a subject, the crisis of democracy. Now, we're all too often told, uh, and this has generally been a given during the course of the last few generations, uh, that democracy is fixed and given. Uh, but it's quite clear that all across the world, uh, democracies are sick and they're suffering from a crisis of confidence. Um, all the available public opinion polling shows that just a third of Australians, think about this, a third of Australians are satisfied with the way our democracy is working. A third of Australians, that's quite extraordinary. And get this, public trust in our political class is at record levels. So the question this evening is, how do we do democracy better? How do we restore faith in democracy? Is there too much corporate and foreign money involved in the electoral process? Is the noisy and relentless media cycle the cause of the crisis of our democracy? How do we attract better elected representatives? How do we do democracy better in this country, but also across the Western world? Well, to discuss these matters, we have a terrific panel, and I'm going to call on each speaker to address the group in five to seven minutes. Uh, Luca Bongiorno Nettis, uh, Matthew Lesh, Glenn Barnes, Greg, Greg Barnes, Glenn Barnes, and uh, Matthew and Janet Albrickson. Uh, it's four speakers, and I'll call on each of them one at a time. And our first speaker will be Luca Bongiorno Nettis. Uh, he's the founder of the New Democracy Foundation. Please welcome Luca. Thank you so much, Tom, for giving me the opportunity to join with these other distinguished uh, speakers to present my thesis on what's wrong with the, uh, uh, the state of Denmark. Uh, uh, so there are many who take the view that our democratic system can self-correct to accommodate an ever-evolving electorate. This is what democracy does. So there is little to be concerned about. What we are seeing now, according to this view, is a period of adjustment as new players enter the scene following the decline of the major parties. Parliaments are consequently likely to settle into a series of rolling compromises, meaning minority governments, as is the case now in much of Europe. In Australia, this self-correction may entail some minor changes such as extended parliamentary terms, to enhance what is already a robust framework. I think this view, this view fails to recognise the profound lack of trust in the political class as a whole. And Tom has now alluded to a number of the statistics that talk to that. The most compelling one for me is the ANU Longitudinal Study, which commenced in 1969, which shows trust in government peaking in that year at just over 51%, which can hardly be regarded as an Everest of confidence, 
but that's where it peaked. It now stands at 26%. In 50 years, our faith in government has halved. We now have barely a quarter of the population who trust politicians to do the right thing. Moreover, other surveys confirm that independently of party affiliation, there is a lack of respect for the politician as a vocation. And you've probably seen those surveys that place politicians down with used car salesmen uh, as the most respected vocation. <laughs> Serious. And it's not just Australia, it's across the world. And, you know, but up, up the top are people like doctors and nurses, as you would expect. So it's concerning. I would say that no matter the party or the candidate, hardly anyone manages to attract a primary vote much above 35%. Our future parliaments are likely to be comprised of warring parties obliged to form unpalatable alliances where no one leader emerges triumphant for long. With elections having devolved into, the che into cheap point scoring, it really should be no surprise that politicians are held in such low regard. Whether at the local, state or federal level, we are voting for the least disliked candidates. This is not exclusively an exclusively Australian problem. This scenario is being played out worldwide. Politicians may indeed be well-intentioned, and I mean that, but they come across as more interested in electoral success than good government. I call this the electioneering imperative. I coined that phrase. You can use it at your, at your will. <laughs> it, it is the overarching priority that politicians place on winning and retaining office at the expense of developing good public policy. As a consequence, there is a disconnection between the legislature and the people. Matthew is, is going to follow me and he's written a book on this whole subject and he describes this as the disconnect between the inners and the outers. And then I think Matthew would probably define most of us in this room as part of the inners group. The challenge for me is to give the outers a real sense of being part of the system and not just being talked down to. There's this African saying which goes, what you do for me, without me, you do to me. Contemporary politics is alienating a growing part of the population. For those of you who have heard me speak before, you'll recognise that this critique of elections is my standard refrain. So at the risk of boring you, boring you all again, I persist because I think it bears repeating. Democracy, when it was originally conceived, did not have elections or voting for political candidates. The, the debate was focused on issues, not personalities and parties. The Athenian Council was selected by lot amongst rich and poor men. There was no contest for candidature. It was the jury process. We've mostly forgotten that. Democracies in the modern era chose to embrace elections, thinking that the transparent tournament would produce a meritocratic assembly. However, what we are finding is these parliaments are dogged by mean-spirited power plays trying to advance factional interests trapped in an endless wrangling for dominance. I don't think that's an exaggeration. They're trapped in an endless wrangling for dominance. Is it really any wonder that most people, the outers especially, are 
turned off. The question asked of us this evening is whether we have a crisis in democracy. Well, here down under, we are not Venezuela. We don't have a catastrophe of a government with millions escaping a nightmare of a country. What we do have, though, in common with most nation states, is an alarmingly low regard for our political class. Personally, I can't see this getting any better. There are, however, promising alternatives to the Groundhog Day of current politics. For several decades, deliberative polls, citizen assemblies and citizen juries, all inspired by that original Greek model, are showing how to constitute a collaborative and productive parliament. Some countries are now experimenting with more permanent institutions, such as the Citizen Senate. I believe that these initiatives point to a better system of political representation. For as long as we continue with electing our representatives the way we're doing today, we'll keep throwing up salesmen rather than statesmen. It's not their fault, it's the system. And I'm happy to talk and field questions and debate all of that, deliberate all of that later. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much, Luca. Uh, highlighting, I love that line, a groundhog day of Australian politics. It's very similar. I mean, when you think about the last, uh, what is it now, since 2010, we've had uh, six prime ministerships. Rudd, Gillard, Rudd, Abbott, Turnbull, Morrison, the groundhog day of Australian politics and putting forward ways of addressing that. Our next speaker is Matthew Lesh. He's a research fellow at the Institute of Public Affairs in Melbourne. And he's also author of a book that's on sale at the back there that I'd strongly encourage you to buy if you're so willing. It's called Democracy in a Divided Australia by Connor Court. Ladies and gentlemen, Matthew Lesh. Uh, well, thank you very much, um, Tom, and, and thank you very much for the encouragement uh, to buy the book, um, most importantly. But uh, thank you very much uh, also for um, not only inviting me to this event, but, but having this very important discussion about the nature of democracy. I'm going to give a, a bit of a, a brief outline of what I, um, I agree in my book is, is the key, to what I think is the key defining factor behind um, the situation we're in with our democracy and the thesis I have, which really surrounds um, a new forms of polarisation and, and a realignment in the way our politics works. I'm going to start off with a, a little bit of a little bit of a story. So earlier this year, as part of my my role at the IPA, um, we were invited by our good friends, the Socialist Alternative, uh, at La Trobe University in Melbourne. So for those who don't know, La Trobe University is in in the northern working class suburbs of Melbourne. It was one of those universities, uh, Menzies. Uh, was behind uh, the Menzies era university construction, um, led to the creation of La Trobe University. Uh, but it's, of course, um, not been the most friendly to Menzies' side of politics, and it's infamously known as uh, La Trotte uh, in, uh, in Melbourne circles for its, some of its more radical politics. So when we get invited to speak there about capitalism and socialism, uh, we're not expecting a lot of support, myself and, and one of my colleagues, John. Um, and we get up and nervously give our speeches and uh, try to make the case for how capitalism has lifted over a billion people out of poverty and, and the great freedom it provides. Meanwhile, the socialist alternative are there doing their old shtick about how um, working is monotonous under the capitalist system and you're used and abused. Um, and then afterwards, these, these kids, they start, they start putting up their hands and saying, well, but how can you support socialism when it's killed so many people? 
Um, and then another one, um, a girl by the name of Solmaz puts up her hand and she says, my father's a panel beater. Um, and we come, we come from uh, what Donald Trump would, would term a, a shithole country um, and not a great place. And he can't come to here and become a doctor. Uh, he's a panel beater and that's what he does. And what Solmaz, uh, who I spoke to afterwards, talked to me about was about the sense in which she worked and her family worked hard um, in order to get the opportunities. And what the story tells us about, I think, is the start of how really the disconnect and the emerging disconnect between um, the traditional association between the Labor Party and the parties of the left and the socialist parties um, and the working class. Uh, this, this work was really pioneered by uh, Dr. David Kemp in the 1970s, um, wrote a PhD thesis at the time about the emerging tendency, the emerging trend, which has really accelerated since, of people who are working class increasingly voting for liberal, the liberal side of politics and people of the middle class, of under, for middle class, uh, increasingly voting for Labor. And these days it's reached such a point where if you self-identify as working class, you're actually more likely to vote for the coalition than you can vote for Labor, which is a huge historic uh, transformation. I think we can see that in our politics. Um, We've really entered a new kind of political divide within the parties in which they're actually uh, mixed. And I call this um, the, the new kind of divide that I think overlaps the traditional class divide that used to define our politics, the middle class voting uh, liberal, the working class voting Labor. I call this the divider, as was said earlier, between the inners and the outers, and I'll quickly outline that. Uh, so the inners are really the, the demographic that began emerging um, post, uh, I guess, kind of the in universities uh, post-war, um, kind of the, the early baby boomers, um, first came to prominence around the Vietnam War protests. Uh, these are the people who are very different in their, their um, sense of identity and purpose to the previous middle class. So while historically, and, and Judith Brett talks about this, um, the, the, the liberal um, voter, the moral middle class, would be focused on a kind of Protestant work ethic kind of mentality. This new middle class uh, receive their identity and their sense of purpose from their achievements, um, their, their highly educated professional class. Um, they're the people who are assertive. They value change. Um, they have less prioritisation in their politics for traditional materialist concerns like security and having food on the table, and they're more likely to be um, the founding pioneers behind um, the, the new social movements uh, of, of the, the modern era. It's really the inners who've come to dominate um, much of Australian uh, politics and civil society and, and business and trade unions, um, really across both sides of politics, both the economic left and the economic right. Think um, Malcolm Turnbull as a, as a kind of inner uh, liberal, whilst you know, not too different to the Greens in many ways in a lot of his values on certain kind of cultural issues, like I said, the Republic or climate change. Um, I then contrast them with the outers. Um, uh, people whose identity is more based on their associations with place and family and uh, people who have more traditional materialist concerns who are greater in number but tend to be underrepresented in our politics. Now, I think this is undermining democracy. This divide is undermining democracy for two reasons. First of all, uh, the fact that our parties cannot speak to both people at the same time. The Liberal Party is struggling to speak to the voters of Wentworth at the same time as Western Sydney. Uh, Bill Shorten will say one thing in the seat of Batman in inner city Melbourne, and he will say something very, very different in Townsville about climate change and energy policy. And when our politicians are trying to be that duplicitous 
um, and that manipulative and they're trying to speak to two different audiences simultaneously, it's probably not that surprising that people are losing faith in politicians and that they're not staying true to any kind of seemingly consistent um, value set. And that's, that's the first reason, the fact that um, inherently people are disparate as a consequence of that, then increasingly voting for other parties. Um, something like 50% of Australians are considering voting for a non-major party um, at the next election. And that, in fact, was a poll um, probably about a year ago. So I imagine it has probably increased since. That's why you see people voting for the ultimate inner party like the Greens or an outer party like One Nation or Shooters and Fishers. And that kind of movement around uh, polarisation, repolarisation on, on different axes um, the inner outer axis has really driven um, a lot of the instability I think we're seeing in our politics and the, the tendency to swap leaders following radical um, radical polling changes is partly I think really because people aren't associated with the major parties because they've lost faith in them. Um, and the second reason why I think this is undermining democracy is really the fact that um, inners have come to dominate uh, policymaking a little bit too much and have a tendency to undermine themselves and undermine democracy in the process. Um, inners, in, in a lot of ways, have done a lot of good. Uh, we, we shouldn't... It's inners who've pushed for, you know, the opening of Australia's economy has created a lot of prosperity. And um, there's been a widespread liberalisation in attitudes uh, around a bunch of social issues, even amongst the outers, issues like homosexuality or um, racism or abortion or euthanasia. There is very widespread liberal attitudes. But there's still a lot of cultural conservatism in terms of uh, patriotism, belief in country, um, scepticism about change and, and, and hesitancy about change that the inners don't understand. Meanwhile, at the same time, the inners have a tendency towards what I'd say is technocratic and paternalistic policymaking. Uh, that's to say that if you think, if you're highly educated, if you've been given the, the degree on your door, you think you're probably smarter and better than everyone else and that you have a right to tell them how to live their lives. I think we see this tendency the most prominently in nanny state policies in which people are um, taxed to, to the heap for supposedly making the wrong decision, like it's somebody else's decision to make what is wrong and what is right. Um, another way in which I think inners have undermined uh, democracy and policymaking is this real proliferation of um, undemocratic forms of decision-making. Uh, we've, we've taken a lot of decisions out of the democratic realm um, and we've chosen to put them into independent regulatory agencies in which things are negotiated between inners and businesses and trade unions and, um, and government. And really, uh, even the politicians themselves have very little say, let alone the fact that most politicians themselves are inners um, and, and incapable of representing a wider perspective. Um, I conclude uh, my book by uh, putting out this idea of what I call liberal populism, which is uh, effectively a response to this sense in which decisions are being made. Um, as some of the statistics said earlier, people feel like they don't have a say, like politicians aren't listening. And we need to start thinking about some real structural forms that we can give power back to the people. And I'll just say one of them quickly, which is localism. Uh, we need to reverse the 100-year-long trend of centralisation of power in Canberra because the further power is away from the people... Um, who are impacted by the decisions. Not only are the decisions going to be worse, but the people aren't going to have a say in how they're made. Um, I better conclude my, my remarks there, but I'm going to say in, in one final note, which is I'm extremely optimistic um, about our capacity to overcome these challenges. I don't think it's all negative. I don't think these are insurmountable. Um, a lot of my analysis is inspired by what's happened in the UK and the US, but it's quite clear that our polarisation isn't as extreme um, and that we, we are capable um, I think, of, of overcoming these issues. So thank you very much. I look forward to the questions.
It's always good to have some optimism. We at CIS always take an optimistic view about public policy. And, uh, and I think that's a very good point about Australia. I think what distinguishes Australia from the United States and certainly many parts of Europe is that we've had, among other things, 27 years of uninterrupted economic growth and by all accounts, a very successful immigration policy that commands broad support. Questions about the extent of that migration program, but there's confidence in the system that you don't really have in Europe and America. Um, we'll talk more about these inners and outers in the question time with all of you later. Our next speaker is a AS, ASX a company chairman and company director. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Glenn Barnes. Thank you, Tom, and thank you all for giving me an opportunity to speak to you tonight. I'd like to argue a premise that it is timely for Australians to refresh and re reboot our democratic processes. And a lot of what I'm saying uh, has already been prefaced by the two prior speakers. Like many citizens, and I'm sure yourselves, I've become frustrated from time to time with policy decisions and behaviours of some politicians. They are contrary to my personal beliefs and values. However, my frustration with the way Australia governs itself peaked when I was involved with the health and aged care sectors. Meetings with government ministers, both federal and state, left me in no doubt that most of our senior politicians were aware of a large building and demographic, demographically driven tsunami of healthcare need and costs and that there was an apparent lack of political will to openly and transparently address these problems. The price of being the one to out the problems and the cost to the community of adequately addressing these issues looked to be too great an electoral risk for the major political players to take. Today, there is a growing list of issues that are not being adequately addressed. Tax, energy, atmospheric emissions, housing, Indigenous rec people's recognition and support policy, to name but a few. As Luca pointed out a few minutes ago, today Australian citizens are demonstrating a growing lack of satisfaction with and trust in a governance system that is struggling to bring our country together in addressing many of the big issues we face. Although it has served us well, the centuries-old model of elected representative democracy does not seem to be coping well with the changes in technology, news flows, education, social mobility, individuality, globalisation and demographics, etc. The good news is that there are plenty of things we can do to refresh and reboot the system and yet retain its core strengths. During 2017, a group of concerned Australians representing a range of political views and social elements of our society gathered in two symposium meetings to discuss the question, what changes can we agree upon to deliver effective long-term decision-making which earns public trust. The outcomes of those two meetings could be clustered into three categories. <coughs> Firstly, improve transparency and accountability in government, specifically with regarding groups with favoured political influence, donations and a federal ICAC. Secondly, seeking evidence-based and openly consultative government policy making 
on all matters of significance. And thirdly, a refresh and rebooting of the Australian democratic processes through changes in our governmental processes and broadly re-engaging our citizens in the process of making policy decisions that are required for the common good. The issues inherent in these first categories are topics of ongoing discussion in the public arena. In the second category, Professor Percy Allen AM has progressed a widely publicised piece of research and guidance for governments based on the work of Professor Kenneth Wilshire of the University of Queensland Business Schools. The issues within the third category have the potential to produce the most impactful and sustained change for the better. But due to the size and degree of difficulty in implementation, there has been no progress to date. <coughs> Currently, a group of symposium participants with encouragement from interested supporters are considering how to best bring about a broad community awareness of and energised discussion around the third category, using the following topics as stimulus. The facilitation of constitutional change. Our constitution has served us well in many ways, but it is not without flaws and awkward legal and regulatory workarounds. Australians should be able to, when required, efficiently amend the constitution to keep it contemporary. The establishment of a constitutional council or a regular constitutional convention may be ways of addressing this issue. Redefining the Senate. The Australian Senate has morphed from a chamber of review on behalf of the Federation states to a politicised chamber, often producing frustration and distortion to the mandate of the elected government. The processes, transparency, accountability and public trust of the federal government could be greatly improved if we could transform the Senate into an effective People's House of Review, broadly untainted by partisan politics. To achieve this, perhaps a revision of the Senate's charter and convention should be considered, with senators selected by lot as with juries, from a proportionally representative sample of citizens and adopting some of the rules and conventions along the lines of those used by the UK House of Lords. For example, not being able to block supply, only being able to reject a piece of legislation three times <laughs> before the lower house can pass it into law, allowing an elected government in the lower house to legislate on issues that received a clear electoral mandate without interference. Rethinking the role of each layer of government Australia has three levels of government, federal, state and local. There was discussion and decision on what each layer of government should be responsible for at the time of federation. Changes to the original balance of power and decision making have occurred over the years since federation due to decisions by the courts, regulation, financial coercion and practical and consensual workarounds. Casual observation suggests that the power drift has been towards the more central federal tier of government. Prima facie, this may not be considered a bad thing in terms of greater efficiency and common practice. However, it could be argued that this process <coughs> makes trade-off decisions harder to make and increases the sense and reality of autocratic policy decisions missing the reality of implementation challenges and unintended consequences at the local level. 
A means of addressing this could be via a facilitated public discussion and convention over the options available to us, followed by a referendum redefining the role of each layer of government. In this discussion, we could also consider different models used with success elsewhere. For example, Switzerland, where far more decisions, decision-making, accountability and revenue gathering is focused at the local level. Re-establishing the quality and independence of the public service. The public service plays a very important role in the Westminster style of liberal dem democratic government. We once had a system that attracted, trained, retained and leveraged some of the best minds in our country. These professionals presented fact, substance and context to government in a non-partisan way to support quality decision making. Governments of differing views and political philosophy could come and go, yet the public service helped maintain a relatively steady system. A considerable number of experts believe that politicians have effectively eroded the independence, impact and morale of the public service through removal of tenure, political influence on appointments and empowerment of a costly tranche of ministerial advisers resulting in independent public service recommendations often being overridden in favour of politically motivated approaches. We need to publicly acknowledge what has happened to the system and rethink and redefine what we want from our public service, then rebuild. It is my view that we need to debate and redefine what we expect our system of governance, federal, state and local, how we fund each tier and how many voices and opinions, of, or how the many voices and opinions of our citizens are to be represented and reconciled in policy decisions in, and our laws and regulations. If we can build an understanding of the opportunity amongst the citizens of our nation and structure a constructive dialogue, there is nothing to stop us refreshing our democracy and community trust in it within the next five years. Thank you. Glenn, thank you very much and uh, they're very important and considered proposals to revive democracy here at home. Um, I think it's fair to say that um, there's no question that the public service has indeed been increasingly politicised since the mid-1980s. I think that was probably the turning point. And uh, you may recall on the question of the Upper House, the Senate, Paul Keating famously said that the Senate was unrepresentative's will. So it's good to see that you're making the case for why it should be the People's House Review. Our next speaker uh, is uh, a very widely read columnist uh, at the Australian newspaper. Uh, you can read her work every Wednesday and Saturday in the Oz. Disclaimer, um, I hired Janet Albrickson uh, in the summer of 2001, 2002. It was my first hire as the opinion page editor at the Oz, and it's a great pleasure to welcome her to CIS. Janet Albrickson. Thanks, Tom. Uh, thanks for including me in this panel. I recall that too, and I recall when I, soon after I joined, there were a bunch of women who, who uh, gathered around your desk and said, you've got to get rid of that Albrickson. <laughs> And I rang Chris Mitchell, the editor-in-chief at the time, and said, Chris, I just find this really unacceptable from a workplace, you know, um, 
um, environment. You know, I'd come from a law firm. It was very professional and I thought this was unheard of. And he said, well, you just have to toughen up. That's what it's like here. And so I just thought, <laughs> okay. So I toughened up. That was actually the least of the problems. But anyway. Um, so democracy in Australia. When Tom invited me to speak on this, I um, immediately went to my bookshelf to the democracy section. I don't have a democracy section, but it's all, it's all a mess. But anyway, I picked out every book I could find on democracy and I just want to read them out to you. So there was Niall Lucy and Steve Mickles' The War on Democracy. There was Clive Hamilton's Silencing Dissent, How the Australian Government is Stifling Debate. There was, of course, David Marr's uh, quarterly essay, His Master's Voice, The Corruption of Public Debate. There's more. There was Robert Mann talking about those barren years. And on it went. Uh, Of course, there was a book called The History Wars, which had nothing to do with history, but everything to do with politics. And people like me and Miranda Devine and others were labelled, we wrote with the tone of a Stalinist ideologue. We used weapons of mass destruction. This was written by a historian. So I, I kind of feel like we've been here before, a crisis in democracy. It depends very much who's in power. Uh, When Malcolm Turnbull was recently removed, um, Chris Yorman, of all people, said that uh, democracy was in crisis in Australia because the media had gotten rid of Malcolm Turnbull. Well, you know, there were lots of public opinion polls before that. Um, 27, I think. Perhaps there were more. I lost... 47. Yeah, I lost count. But anyway, we, 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 we went past that point that he had set for Tony Abbott. And I don't recall the media, Chris Yulman or anyone in the media, saying there was a crisis with democracy when Malcolm Turnbull removed Tony Abbott. So your view about what makes a robust democracy depends very much who's in power. When John Howard was in power, there was a dreadful crisis with democracy in Australia. And that's not to say that I don't agree that the last 10 years have been absolutely dismal, but I'm a bit like Ronald Reagan. You know, I'm I'm an optimist in a room, perhaps. In his case, it was a party. He was described as an optimist in a party that had acquired a habit of pessimism. I'm very much an optimist. I kind of just turn off at the moment and figure that the cycle will turn. The truth is that there are lots of problems with the system that we could perhaps tinker with, but I think fundamentally this country has lacked proper leadership for 10 years. And if we had a decent leader, I suspect that people in Wentworth and in the West would be listening to that leader. I suspect if we had a decent leader, they would understand what the issues were. Um, They would not speak down to voters and they would show the courage of their convictions. And we simply have not seen that. From Kevin Rudd, who said that climate change was the great moral challenge of our time, until it wasn't, to uh, Julia Gillard, who said that uh, there would be no carbon tax under her government until there was. Um, And Tony Abbott, likewise, uh, Malcolm Turnbull. We have not had good leadership in this country. So I'm just waiting. I'm sitting it out. I've stopped talking about politics on Sky TV and I'm just doing my writing now because I figure the cycle will turn. I'm not uh, as pessimistic as, um, as a few others here. I, I, I suspect that uh, eventually... That's not to say it's easy. I think the media has made things more difficult. I think people are uh, less trusting. I don't think that's a bad thing. I mean, we don't trust politicians because they don't trust us. So perhaps if politicians showed more respect towards the people, people would show more respect towards uh, politicians. I saw recently that um, Obama was asked why there was no action on climate change. 
And he said, well, the reasons are this. It's because people are confused, they're blind, they're shrouded with hate, anger, racism and money, mummy issues. So if you talk down to voters, don't be surprised if they don't pay too much attention to you. I figure that's where we're at at the moment. So, And, you know, I, I sort of swing a little bit against the tide with, with Trump. I, I, my view is that we need a correction. It's a really ugly thing to watch. Uh, he, he's not a nice person to listen to. But I think that the US political cycle had reached a stage where it needed a bit of a messy correction. And it's going to be messy to watch for another couple of years. But if it produces a Republican Party and a Democratic Party that starts to listen to the people more, then I think uh, we, we, we can say thank you very much, Donald Trump, as hard as some people will find that to say. Um, you know, the irony of uh, the most egotistical man, you know, the man who, who, who lacks so much humility was actually listening to voters more than Hillary Clinton, who slagged off at deplorables. You know, it's a rather delicious irony. Anyway, I'm not going to talk about that side of politics. I'll tell you where my fear lies, and that is with the subterranean shifts. So put Canberra to one side. My biggest concern with democracy is that we are losing sight of what the Liberal Democratic Project is, that we have gone from what Alan Bloom called the closing and he called the American mind, I'll just say the Western mind, the closing of the Western mind, to what Jonathan Haidt calls the coddling of the American mind, which I'll call the coddling of the Western mind. And there's been this slow projection over, over 50 years that's happened. Um, and it, 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 you know, it, it, it's, it's, when I think about the three things that concern me most, and I think this is where Jonathan Haidt has been such a genius in, in applying, if you, if you think it's scary to listen to a former lawyer commentate on cultural issues, it's even darker to listen to a, a, a psychologist and Jonathan Hyde is a brilliant psychologist and he puts it all in perspective and, and when I read uh, his, his latest book, there are really three biggest fears that I, or three biggest problems I see with the next generation and it's the next generation that I'm most concerned about. Um, the first, and I call them the three Fs, fragility, feelings and faith. Fragility. In about 2011-2012, Haidt, uh, Jonathan Haidt noticed that, um, and the research spells this out, that there were alarmingly growing rates of depression, anxiety and self-harm among young girls. At the same time, social media, of course, had taken off. A couple of years later, Haidt, who, as Matthew said, is a professor at New York University, noticed that... Uh, that students were no longer, uh, you know, having, having debates about ideas and, and, and stuff like that. They were looking for protection from words, ideas, books. They were wanting safety. They wanted safe spaces. They wanted trigger warnings. They, uh, they called out something called microaggressions, which we would never have heard about five years ago. Um, so they were looking for protection from words. Now, that is something that, that, that worries me deeply. And I think social media has, has, has a lot to, uh, to answer for. And the way that girls use it is very different to the way boys use it. I mean, boys just do play video games. I can see that in my own house. And, he, and my son's not going out killing people. But I can tell you the way that girls use social media uh, affects them very deeply in terms of their self-image. Um, 
it, it, it promotes a, a level of narcissism, which I don't think previous generations have seen. I mean, the only people that I know that take selfies who are, who are male are Kevin Rudd and Malcolm Turnbull. And isn't that a curious combination? I'll leave it at that. Um, you know, and, and the other changes, if you think about in the last sort of generation of parenting, parenting has changed a lot. Helicopter parenting, again, something I would not have heard about, uh, you know, when I, when I first started having children. Uh, the notion that you would let your children run free and fall over and not race over and pick them up and, 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 and you know, constantly describe them as special. Everyone wins a prize these days. No one's allowed to make mistakes. You know, the lack of resilience in the current generation is what scares me, and that's what Jonathan Haidt is seeing on universities. So that's, that's fragility, and it's not surprising then that feelings is, is another big issue. You know, there's this notion that people need to be protected from words, that words are a form of violence, that words are now erased from Enid Blyton, from Huckleberry Finn. Uh, you know, th th this sort of level of censorship to protect people from harm, not from ideas, but from harm. And it's really changing the way, I think it's literally making us dumber. And again, I'm going to defer to, to Hyatt, the psychologist, who said that people, and look, this will offend a lot of people here, but uh, he said it, I didn't. He said that, uh, you know, individual people are not really that smart. We tend to use gut, inst gut in instincts. But when we're placed in the right environment, like here, where your ideas are tested, where they're checked, where they're challenged, where you strengthen your ideas, that's what makes people smart. But that group dynamic is breaking down. It's breaking down at universities, the very place where we need it to be strong, where we want young minds to grow and learn and be open and challenge themselves so that their ideas are better. That's where it's breaking down. That's where my concern with democracy is. Um, fragility, feelings, faith. So the, the other big change I see, Tom, you'll tell me when I have to finish, um, uh, is uh, with identity politics. So as we've become more secular, secularised as a society, fewer people go to church. But that doesn't mean people aren't searching for, for, for meaning in their life. And identity politics has emerged, and I think it came out of multiculturalism, we can talk about that later, but it's here, it's front and centre in politics across the West. And it gives everyone a home. Right? It gives everyone a home. If, you, if you're uh, a feminist, if you're, um, you know, according to your skin colour, according to your religion, people are breaking off into smaller and smaller groups according to their physical, sexual, whatever tray you want to choose. And I think that's really, really destructive. But that's where people are finding a home these days. And we are tribal beings. You know, we like to be amongst people. We're not joining political parties so much, but we are joining these other identity groups. And I think that's, again, breaking down the very notion of what the Liberal Democratic Project is, which is individuals whose freedom comes from this notion of equality, regardless of your skin colour, regardless of your sex or your religion. That dynamic is breaking down. That's what scares me the most. Um, but I am an optimist and I think there are lots of ways um, out of this uh, bunker that we're in at the moment um, and, and we can certainly talk about that during questions. Thanks, Tom. And now we'll take questions. Uh, let me get the ball rolling by putting uh, Luca Buongiorno on the spot here by saying that in October 2011, uh, with the New Democracy Foundation, 
which of course was set up to break down some of the worst aspects of Australian political life and build something more constructive. Luca went on the um, ABC's PM program with um, my uh, late and great a former ABC Colvin, uh, uh, colleague, Mark Colvin, and you told him that the problem with democracy is that we think it's too adversarial. We think we've probably reached a point in time where we can think of collaborating rather than going at each other. And in some respects, you reiterated those points this evening, Luca. Colvin replied, and I'll put this to you, many people would say that the real problem is not the adversarial nature of democracy, but the fact that nobody is taking principled and consistent decisions. Your response? Well, I'm very impressed that you've uh, <laughs> dug into the archives of uh, the ABC. Without warning you as well. <laughs> That's right. Um, uh, well, I, I, th I think I, I agree with Mark's comment uh, and that the sense is that um, uh, there is um, let me be, let me be yep. clear about this I mean I'm no I'm, I'm not against debating I'm, I'm all for a robust debate what I'm what I feel is problematic is where the 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 uh, silos that we artificially create in respect of the political parties uh, who uh, patently seem to be less ideologically principled than they have been in the past are now uh, much more mercenary, uh, much more interested, as I was saying, in um, uh, winning and retaining office. So, um, yes, I agree with Mark. Yeah, there are no, the principles are not obvious anymore in the political debate. Uh, but Matthew Lesh, uh, we don't want to make this all about Donald Trump, but he is a source of a lot of angst about democracy in the Western world. Uh, in the lead up to his election, we all too often were told that his election would mark uh, resurgence of fascism or the emergence of fascism in America. We all too often hear this, not just, by the way, on the ideological left, but many neoconservatives, such as Max Boot uh, at the Washington Post, among others, um, but is, is Trump really a problem? Because if you think about what he's done in office, whether you like it or not, he's been remarkably consistent, hasn't he, in terms of putting into practice what he said he'd do? I mean, I mean look, I, I think Trump is a, is a symptom, not a cause of uh, struggles with democracy. Uh, what led to Trump was not the 2016 election. It was uh, the 10 previous elections and the, the, the ongoing um, dynamics in, in American and, and Western politics towards uh, a loss of faith in, in the traditional uh, political parties and traditional political rhetoric, um, which they were quite frankly sick of. Um, I remember seeing some uh, American uh, campaign, you know, Republican campaigners, very mainstream, telling me you know, six months earlier that Jeb was guaranteed to be the candidate and the next president of the United States of America. And I think that just showed the level of disconnect um, that existed between uh, the elite uh, class in um, Washington and, and in uh, on the East Coast and the the real feeling of um, disconnect in rural America. Um, I I don't I I don't buy necessarily by the thesis that you know, fascism is here. I think that's um, 
that's been said before. I think it was said plenty of times when George W. Bush was president. And now he's a hero of the left, um, in some <laughs> ways. So it doesn't. It seems nonsensical. Um, I'm not. I'm not a huge uh, Donald Trump fan by by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I think he's been very successful in, in cutting red tape and in, in reducing taxes and doing some of the traditional Republican work. I think his um, trade war. Uh, rhetoric and mercantilist tendencies are, are disgraceful and, and counterproductive and hurt everything else he tries to do. Um, I think some of his rhetoric um, is obviously vicious and, and, and quite exclusionary at times, and that's what I worry about. But really, Trump is, is reflects, I think, a failure of, the, of liberals, broadly speaking. I mean, America's a, on the left and the right is, is largely a quite a liberal country. Um, this is um, uh, the, the American... Um, founding in, in John Locke, the ideas of John Locke and, and uh, Jefferson and, and the creation of the Constitution. It's all very liberal in the classical sense. Um, but it seems that liberalism is far too often to become too elite um, and too disconnected uh, from, from the people it's trying to claim to represent. And Trump um, was the, the response to that. Yeah, on the Trump issue, <clears throat> and Bush reminds me of something that a, a diplomat told me relatively recently um, that um, he went down to Dallas, Texas and met with uh, President, former President George W. Bush and uh, asked him what he really thought of Donald Trump as president. And Bush said, I think he's doing a great job and the American people need to support him and the media need to get off his back. And my friend said, well, come on, you know, the Bush family opposed Donald Trump. What do you really think? And this went on and on and on. And Bush was getting very frustrated with all the questions. And he said, Listen, man, get off his back. He's making me look good. <laughs> <clears throat> Janet, you say the, the tide will turn, uh, that, um, that this uh, leadership churn that we've experienced in Canberra will eventually <clears throat> subside and normal programming will resume. And I think that's the, the feelings and the hopes of a lot of people. But um, can I submit to you that perhaps the leadership churn and instability we've seen in Canberra is um, the norm and not an aberration. If you go back to the first uh, decade and a half or so of uh, our federation, from 1901 through to the beginning of World War I, we had 10 prime ministerships in 14 years. At the height of the Vietnam War upheaval, from Menzies in early 66 to Whitlam in late 72, and we recently, just two nights ago, had Paul Kelly and John Howard talking about these very issues with a biographer of a new book on uh, Bill McMahon, um, we had six prime ministerships during that period. So aren't Menzies, Howard and Hawke, those good old days, aren't they an aberration? Well, yeah, certainly they are, Tom. And I'm certainly not going to challenge your political uh, knowledge. Um, the only point that I would make is that um, for those of us who came of voting age uh, during Hawke, Keating um, and then Costello, uh, Howard and, and obviously Costello was treasurer... Um, eventually, I, I do believe that uh, leaders will emerge from both. I think on both sides of politics, there are younger, a younger generation of people who are better than the current leaders of the party. So I, I don't dispute that that change in leadership is the norm. I, I simply make the point that I think that um, within that sort of revolving door of political leaders, we've had pretty poor leaders and one way to, to, to possibly to, to just, you know, to, to halt that revolving door is, is to have a, a, a decent leader. Now, I, I couldn't tell you who that mm. is right now. But, Janet, just to put you on the spot here, um, you and I, and I suspect many people in this room, admire greatly John Howard. 
but he, like Paul Keating and Bob Hawke and Robert Menzies, of course, never had to contend with this polarising social media. To what extent has digital technology changed the game? Well, it certainly has. I mean, just as it was different for Howard um, compared to Menzies on the radio, uh, you know, television, the media, radio, social media is a really big issue, I think, for politics. And you tend to see people overreacting to what they see on Twitter um, time and time again. There's this overreaction. I, I think politicians should just, you know, not, not be on Twitter at all. Mm. I think it's a really dangerous, reactive, angry, unthinking uh, social media platform that they just don't need. You know, they're, they're, they're not going to change it or, or gain a single vote on Twitter. Even, I, though, I, even though, to be fair, that helped Donald Trump immensely in 2016, correct? Yeah, that's true. That, that is true. But, you know, I do think that Trump is the aberration. I just want to put Trump to one side. Okay. I support him as, an, as, a, as, a, as a, a character of, you know, as a disruptor. Um, but I think generally these kinds of social media platforms don't help. My only point is that I think politicians rely too much on them or read too much into them. And I don't think that's helpful. Glenn, uh, you put forward some proposals on how to kickstart our democracy, make our democracy better. And one of the ones you and New, New Democracy have floated is the idea of citizens' juries. Earlier this year in the Guardian newspaper, Paul Carp talked about um, jury models to help uh, public policy questions. And he said that the jury model involves inviting Australians to put up their hands for service, then randomly selecting a group controlling for factors such as age, sex and home ownership in the same manner that opinion polls draw together representative samples. Question, how can we have any faith in this deliberative democracy, which, let's be frank, has really been absent since Julia Gillard's ill-fated campaign to have a citizens' assembly on climate change in 2010? I think the... The problem we had back then, and we've had for some time, is that, and the point Luca made, that most everyday Australians have peeled off even caring about the system. Mm. It's the, the reason Trump got elected. I mean, he got elected to go there and drain the swamp. Well, I can promise you here and now, he will not drain the swamp. But the way American politics is structured and was set up by the forebearers of, the, of their nation... Uh, it, it is almost impossible for a president to fix it. Mm. And, and our problem really goes back, if I may just take us all back for a minute, over 200 years ago when this liberal democracy was set up. It basically was a move from the power of the king to the power of the barons through the Privy Council and then a, an elected autocracy. And the fathers of the American Constitution pointedly refused to call it democracy because they knew it was an elected autocracy. And it was done for very deliberate reasons. The majority of the population weren't educated, didn't have access to news flows, and didn't have the time to get involved even if they had. Now, we live in a very different world today, mm. and I would argue there's been a slow drift away from trust in the system because people aren't drawn into it. Now, coming back to citizens' juries... I do believe, and, and I, I think I align with Janet here, that if we had politicians who are willing to put their ego and their drive for power aside and actually use citizens' juries cleverly on the big issues, we could draw our nation together 
and make decisions that are in the common interest. John Key did it in New Zealand. He had a problem like we have with tax and with a social safety net. He put to Victoria University, will you consider this issue? We'll give you all the resources you need from the public sector and whatever, but don't talk to us, the politicians, talk to the people. And over a period of time, they basically got to the stage where New Zealanders started saying about 60% of them, yeah, that makes sense. He then drew the issue back into the political arena. He had basically neutered the opposition because how could you fight against an issue like that? Mm. And they took it forward. I, I think longer term, uh, I don't have quite the faith in independent leaders of great quality popping up and staying there for long terms. I think we should make a structural change and draw people back informally, mm. but I'm not against, and if I was one of the current politicians, I would be setting up citizens' juries on the big issues I, I talked about earlier to actually help draw our population together in the common interest, because I think people do have an ability to come to that. Janet Albrickson. Can, can I just make a point, um, a, a different suggestion? Because, you know, we, we need to consider a range of suggestions how we get people more engaged. And I recently wet, met with a, an American man called Alfredo Ortez, who runs a really interesting organisation in the US called the Job Creators Network. And you will have seen in The Australian this week, there is a group called Advance Australia, which is like, a, I guess, a conservative mm -hmm. uh, get-up. That's the hope anyway. Well, John, Front page of The Australian this week, right? Yeah, yeah. And we'll see, see what happens there. But getting people engaged in, you know, there's nothing wrong with get-up. I've always had this argument with a lot of liberals. They'd love to shut, you know, get-up <laughs> down. And understandably, because get-up is very good at what they do. They engage people. Right? They, I, I think they don't talk down to people. They, they raise serious issues. I just have a problem with, you know, uh, the, their ideas. But I don't dispute that raising those kind of issues is valuable. So the Job Creators Network in the United States is a grassroots small business organisation that travels, um, Alfredo travels in buses all around the States and he gets stories out um, about what small business need. He gets, uh, you know, people who own small businesses talk about what they need in terms of tax relief or workplace re um, regulation, all that kind of stuff. And there will be senators there, but when they're on the stage, they're the fourth person to talk. They're not the first. In Australia, if you, you're at any function with a politician, they're always the first person to talk, right? In this, in, in this organisation, the point is that it's the grassroots small business people who talk about what they need. And if they've got tax cuts, what kind, you know, because they were integral, by the way, in getting these tax cuts through Congress. Uh, Alfredo stood next to Donald Trump when the tax cuts were announced, right? So getting that kind of grassroots support for any kind of big legislative change is really important. And I think we lack that in Australia. We have get up. We don't have anything to match that. Q&A. Yes, sir. Adrian. Yes. Uh, wait for the mic, mate. <clears throat> Uh, You're right. Um, so it's been over a year since the same-sex marriage plebiscite was pushed, and there's some people. Uh, mic up, mate. Yep. There's some people who aren't willing to. Just take your time. Yep. Um, just a question for all the panelists. So it's been over a year since the same-sex marriage plebiscite was um, being campaigned, and there's some people who aren't feeling, you know, the benefits of um, the plebiscite. Many people felt that this was exploiting um, democracy as um, 
a uh, in a political as a political system in spite of many people being in favor of formal marriages among same-sex couples as being polled. It, is a plus side today still defensible? And what would be the best defense on those grounds? Luca. Uh, Mark. Yeah. Uh, uh, thanks for that question. That's like a Dorothy Dixon to me. Um, <laughs> because I, I, we're well, well known for not being in favor of referendum per se or plebiscites. And, and I think the classic example is uh, Brexit, uh, uh, pleb call it plebiscite referendum, however you want to do it, call it. I think the notion of, of um, uh, the same-sex marriage, I think the, n the notion of, of getting a broad uh, response from the public at large to a question is very important. Uh, it's a question of how one goes about it. Um, what happens with the referendums normally in Switzerland, and as Tom mentioned, Switzerland is, a, is, is seen as one of the better democracies, if you like. Uh, those referendums come out with actually papers that put the arguments pro and con so people can study them. And they're quite uh, substantial uh, documents that come out. On, a, on the marriage equality question, it really wasn't so much an issue of, of detailed analysis most people already had a view. So yes, um, a plebiscite could be argued or a referendum could be argued to, uh, uh, to be worthwhile just on the question without much in the way of deliberation beforehand. However, uh, I think we all felt that um, uh, the, the politicians some, somehow uh, resiled from their duties in that regard because we expected the parliament to to, to decide on it and then it became a bit of a, a bit of political football and of course it then once it goes and this is the problem with plebiscites and referendums when they're not when, when there is not a deliberative aspect to them they be, they become uh, very partisan and they become uh, adversarial and and there's cheap point scoring and this and as we saw you know people get get hurt in the process before we go to Janet on plebiscites let me ask you Luca uh, you didn't like the Brexit referendum. What do you make of the growing calls in Britain among Tories and Labor Remainers who want a so-called people's referendum for a second referendum on Brexit? Oh, I to avert a crisis. That's their argument. If uh, they don't get a deal before uh, March 29. Uh, look, look, you know, I, th I think I just said in principle... Uh, there needs to be a, a much more deliberation, representative deliberation on this, on any of these complex subjects, and there was none of that in, in the original mm. Brexit. And I don't want to. Yeah. yeah. Interestingly, the, before the referendum uh, in Brexit, there was hardly any discussion about the border issue between Northern Ireland and Ireland. So, well, but anyway, Janet Albrechtson. Um, I'm just going to differ with you, Luca, on two things: the rotten <laughs> state of Denmark. I have Danish heritage. Yeah, speak up. I, I, I have Danish heritage. <laughs> and that's the second time I've heard it today. So I think we need to own our own rotten state rather than lump it on the Danes, if I can just say. Now I'm going to get to the crux of it, Brexit. I've just noticed that the people who really objected to the Brexit referendum were the people who didn't want Brexit. Mm. Right? So I, I, I think the Brexit vote, no, they didn't consider the, the, uh, the border issue. But they did consider national sovereignty. They did consider this sort of new form of statecraft that we see in the EU, that they didn't want to be subjugated to courts and institutions and parliaments in Europe. 
They wanted to take control of immigration, as we have. Very grassroots issues, I think. Um, and it is, it is an absolute mess. But I think the instincts behind Brexit were very, very fine indeed. I think the political class has made an absolute mess of it. Okay, uh, next question. Sorry, sorry can, uh, I, can I... Can quick I, one. Yep. Jan, Plenty of questions uh, here. Yep. Ju just uh, yes. the, the question uh, is a complex question and it could have been... Prof I mean, I don't think we're necessarily at odds here. I think the question was, you know, on what, on what grounds, on what... What is the framework that Britain would like to see itself going forward with Europe? That was the question. It's not kind of. It's not so. And as they're finding now, it's not just a black and white thing. But let me come back to the same-sex um, marriage referendum. I was very much in support of that. I thought if every Australian had a voice in that, that that once that was settled, we would feel that we had had our voice. I mean, I believe that the the constitution should have been changed because the definition of marriage was very clear. When the, when the constitution was written. It was actually that that we needed to have, yeah. right? Okay. But, okay, we had a plebiscite. Next question. Yes, ma'am. Oh, sorry. Uh, yep, you're right. Next one. Yep. I recommend that everyone read uh, John Keane's book, The Life and Death of Democracy, because he traces the evolution of democracy over the last three and a half thousand years. And he calls what we've got now monetary democracy, by which he means that there's a plethora of special interest groups who are monitoring the actions and plans of government and will oppose virtually everything they come up with, which right. is why we have the paralysis we do. And it seems to me that one of the monitors of democracy that's fallen by the wayside and has been touched on here today is the citizens. I think in many ways we've all outsourced citizenship to somebody else because how many of us actually have a dialogue with our local member? Mm. You know, and, and being uh, representing our views through... Uh, uh, surveys just doesn't cut it, you know. You, the politicians don't know what we think. Glenn Barnes. I, I couldn't agree with you more, having read that book. It's rather interesting, though, uh, you go back in history. Uh, one of the things that fascinated me, I was involved in a uh, historical study done on the, the formation of our federation. And I don't know how many of you know, but it took nearly 30 years for our federation to be pieced together. It nearly fell apart many, many times, but it was carried by people who didn't have either power or position. It was carried by the citizens because in the end they saw the common sense of it. And I, I think that's probably the, the start mm. and the finish of it. We okay. need to get people back involved. Uh, question, yes, there you go, and then you. Yep. Matthew, I, I don't agree that there are inners and outers. I think that there are, there is the protected class and the unprotected class. And the protected class are the people who have the money and the power and the unprotected class are everybody else who are out there, you know, doing their enemas and, you know, working the forklifts. They're the people who are disengaged because they see that their interests are not put forward and it's the protected class who have, I mean, whenever there is a, um, if there is a terrorist attack, I mean, they've put a great big fence around Parliament, you know. What about the people that walk around the streets? They're the ones who are not protected and, and that is the role of government, to keep the citizens safe, dispense justice and to, you know, rule with the consent of the people. 
Matthew so, Lesh, have you got the fault lines wrong of the new political <laughs> scene? Uh, I, I don't think we're we're disagreeing quite as much as uh, as you as you might as you might say, other than perhaps uh, rhetorically. Um, what I what I would note is that the feeling um, in my in my analysis is is ours is definitely um, a lot more uh, feeling disengaged, feeling unprotected, feeling like the the inners. Um, are the people who are controlling things in their own interest and their own benefit. And I, I take an example of this. Um, you can ask a question and you say, do you think big, big business has too much power? And two-thirds of people will say yes. And then, pe- then you ask a question of uh, if you think that uh, trade unions have too much power. And a majority will say yes. I mean, I think in both cases they're probably right in terms of the way policymaking is done. It is uh, policy decisions are made at an elitist level. And I think that, that goes back to um, even the question before you is the fact that, um, that the size and role of government has expanded, uh, the size of the bureaucracy and the public service has expanded, um, the size of the electorates um, in which MPs are elected from have expanded as well. Um, and if you think you've got this traditional idea in a Westminster system of a chain of accountability, uh, you've got a local MP um, who is is accountable to their um, to their constituents, who then holds the government to account, who then holds uh, and the government then holds bureaucracy to account. I think at almost every step that chain is 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 being cut off. I don't think um, just the nature of the size of the electorates that MPs are particularly representative um, of their constituents. They really can't be. It's too diverse. It's too many people, and they're trying to make too many decisions on too many issues at the same time. Of course, um, people are going to feel unhappy a lot of the time. Um, of course, we have a very um, strong system of, of discipline in our parliament that means that politicians don't hold the executive to account. And then even then, the the if you're in the executive, you're mm-hmm. you're more likely to be controlled, I think, by the bureaucracy than you are to control the bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. Um, and we we see. I think one of the big problems in recent history has been um, just the fact that you've got these ministers who are just constantly swapping um, to different portfolios. There's no way you can get your head around a brief in, in a very small amount of time, an idea of what's going on in your department, and these thousands of people you're supposed to be managing. And that's not even to mention uh, the independent regulatory agencies that are designed uh, to take power away from elected officials. And you add all this up and you get a pretty uncomfortable situation here um, in which people are genuinely quite frustrated. Penultimate question. Thank you very much. Thank you all the speakers. I thought you made some very valid points. Thank you. Uh, but one point that I think might we haven't spoken about tonight is that it seems to me that uh, something that affects us greatly is that we've turned from a nation of optimistic doers to pessimistic belly acres and terror <laughs> downers. What do you say to that? <laughs> Luca. Well, <laughs> are you a doomsayer, mate? Uh, uh, well, I'm, uh, I'm not sure. You know, uh, we can all opine, and I think Janet has, has outlined uh, the problems with our psychological state, if you like. Um, I'm more interested in in a political system, and I'm, I'm not, you're not sure how you fix the psychological state, but I think there might be uh, structural changes that might... Uh, facilitate certain things. Can I make a comment about the so-called rational ignorance problem, mm-hmm. uh, which um, um, is this here, which is essentially uh, people, uh, if they don't have a lot of influence on a subject, won't actually apply themselves to the subject. So in, in, normally as voters, uh, your, your, your influence is quite small, so you don't actually study 
the Gonski report. You don't study the NEG report. You kind of go with what people suggest, is it? And you said yourself, Janet, that in fact, in the individuals are not that smart. Uh, that's a bit of a, a disparaging comment. Um, I didn't say Jonathan Hyde. Sorry, Jonathan Hyde, you quoted him, that's right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> good work. Um, and and uh, uh, I, I think when you talk about complex subjects, um, unless you are a domain professional or a sector expert, y you, you really don't know. And so when we're talking about these sort of things, and th that's, that's why I say voting is a somewhat uh, problematic thing because you, you, you go with you know, your, your, your nearest and dearest, your, 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 your party that you can align with or whatever, and you don't necessarily understand the complexity of the question. That's why those jury um, dynamics are much more um, uh, relevant. Janet, quickly. I just, yep. I just want to come in and defend the wisdom of the unlettered man. Um, as much as Jonathan Haidt says that you know individuals are not that smart, I do believe that in every election that I've participated in, uh, that the voters have got it right, actually. So there is a wisdom in, in that gut instinct, uh, even, even if they're not entirely, in, entirely educated. Hmm. And as for the optimistic doers, I think the fact that you are here tonight you're optimistic doers. You are thinking about, you know, issues. Um, you're not sitting at home and moaning. I mean, it's the same as the IPA. If you are out there thinking about the kinds of issues that affect this country and the future of the next generation, that makes you an optimistic doer. Glenn Barnes. Yeah. If I could just give you a little further uh, hope. Uh, I think individually people do tend to whinge. But collective wisdom and collectively when people are focused, I think they are very creative and as creative as they've always been. There were citizens juries with the Melbourne City Council out of Parramatta. People supported the council. In fact, in Melbourne, they recommended a higher rate increase so the, the council could actually implement more of its policies because they saw the sense in it. In the UK, people said you couldn't get the average person ever understanding economics and taking a rational economic view. The Royal Society put out a project over a couple of years where they ran citizens' juries and education on economics, and surprise, surprise, people came up with very common sense, very forward-looking options. So I I'm an optimist. Okay. Final question. Yes, ma'am. Thank you very much. It's very interesting. I totally agree with the inners and outers concept and the idea that disengagement is, is probably the biggest thing that is facing, facing all of us. So dis, public disengagement is one thing. On the flip side, how do you attract the right type of politician going forward for what we are going to face? Yeah. How, do we, how, how do we find better elected representatives? I know, Glenn and Luca, you've talked a bit about this in the past. Glenn. I used to get very angry with our politicians until I realised it was the system, not the politicians, that was ruining the game. If you got elected to Parliament and then spent all your time frustrated and trying to find things through a Senate who really wants to act as a lower house, no wonder you get angry. And, and unfortunately, I think the only real reward a politician gets these days is when they actually get their hands on the levers of power and, and get some ego fulfilment from that. I, I can't see why else you'd be in there. I know a lot of good politicians who have gone in there with the best of intent and get frustrated because they can't do their job because the system's not letting them do their jobs. But we're 
we're also not selecting great politicians. I mean, it's become this sort of self-selecting group, the professional class, the protected class. They all choose other protected uh, members of the protected class. They don't. They don't actually go outside that protected class. Mm. Sorry to to, to um, bring those kinds of people into politics. You used to see it much more uh, fifty or sixty years ago. There was a much broader range of people mm. sitting on, sitting on the benches of parliament. You don't see that today. They're all the same. Luca, quickly. I, I I come back to the longitudinal study of the ANU. It's fifty years that they have been studying this right through this whole period. And the, the trend line is, is plain. It's going down. We do not trust the political class. We do not respect politicians. Now, I don't know, apart from what I'm suggesting, that we need to reinvent how, how we affect that political representation. Mm -hmm. my, my, yeah, quick one here. Yep. in their political system and in democracy if the will of the people wasn't frustrated. Now, the classic case is, is the Tony Abbott election. You got a 2013. Massive, 2013. Massive majority put through the 2014 budget yeah. and it was frustrated by the Senate. Yeah. And, and that's when people start thinking, well, democracy's not working. So the Senate is the problem, like you raised a bit earlier. And the problem with the Senate okay. happened under... Hawke, when he, when he increased the number of senators from 10 to 12, because that gave the opportunity to have all these minority parties in the Senate, which then became the government of Australia, not the elected majority in the lower house. So if the one thing we need to do is yeah, yeah, reduce the number of senators back from 12 to 10, and then there's only five in each election. Okay. Now listen, I think we are running out of time. It's a great way to end the discussion, but I'll, I'll actually end it with this. Who'd want to be an MP today? Matthew Paris, the uh, distinguished writer for The Spectator magazine, uh, former Tory MP, says to be an MP is to feed your vanity and starve your self-respect. <laughs> um, but someone's got to do the job. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to call on my, my colleague, uh, Jeremy Samet, who is the head of our Culture, Prosperity and Civil Society program. Jeremy Samet. Uh, thanks, ladies and gentlemen. It's my job to thank our speakers tonight. But before I do that, I'd like to pick up two points that Tom made. One is that we at CIS are optimistic about public policy. And the second point is that one of the purposes of tonight is to flog books. So <laughs> if you would like to see a politically feasible way to address some of the health reform challenges that Glenn mentioned, I suggest that you go to the Connor Court website where you can get not just uh, Matthew's great book, but also my book on the future of Medicare. <laughs> um, to speak about a crisis of democracy, as we've heard tonight, has become very commonplace in the wake of Trump, in the wake of Brexit, and in the wake of, to be frank, the mountain of op-eds, articles and books analysing the various populist uh, insurgencies that have swept uh, vast many countries in the EU, but also, of course, the UK and the US. And the conventional wisdom that's really emerged out of this is that politics is broken because Western societies have become too polarised on a range of divisive uh, questions and they're, and they're unable to generate the consensus and consent that democracies really rely on to function. It's easy to accept this uh, picture of polarised nations divided on social and geographic lines uh, between elites and ordinary voters, as the lingo goes, when I think a lot of our institutions seem to bear this out. Uh, the poses struck and the positions taken by 
large sections of the media, our schools, our universities, government bureaucracies, much of the corporate sectors and significant elements of both major parties all bear out this thesis that our major institutions have been captured by the values and attitudes of progressive elites. But and amid this welter of apparent evidence and commentary about, the na about our nation's dividing apart, it's very easy to accept this conventional wisdom and make it the operating assumption behind every analysis of every political issue, including the crisis of democracy, as we've heard tonight. This was certainly the way that I approached uh, a piece of research that the CIS uh, put out this week. Our report, Australians' Attitudes to Immigration, Coming Apart or Common Ground, was designed not so much to test uh, that assumption, but to confirm it, that elites and ordinary Australians were divided on immigration. What we did was poll uh, people who live in the top 10% of metropolitan postcodes by income and education, and people who live in the bottom 10% and asked them a series of questions about immigration. When the jury, as it were, came in, what we actually found to our surprise that attitudes were not actually starkly polarised, but they're actually more similar than they were different. We found that in rich and poor postcodes, there was lots of common ground. Majority support for cutting immigration until infrastructure caught up with demand, majority support for requiring migrants to learn English and uh, about Australian values to promote integration, and even more surprisingly, majority support for maintaining strong border protection policies. These views that are often seen on Twitter as being fringe or even worse were actually mainstream values. Now, not only did these uh, results require me and my colleague, my co-author, uh, Monica Wilkie, to write a very different paper from the one we anticipated, but it's also made me rethink the parameters of the polarisation thesis and how this relates to the challenges facing our democracy. The findings we've made firstly make me think that the elite bubble, which will brook no contradiction of progressive pieties, even by mainstream opinion, is literally smaller than we think and largely confined to the top of the elite dominated institutions and political class. To put it another way, like rock and roll, uh, being an insider is not a postcode, but a state of mind. <laughs> the second thing is that the challenges that democracy faces is not necessarily mass social, social polarisation per se, but an old fashioned political problem of politicians being out of step with the mainstream. The political generals, as it were, being out of step with the army. The third implication is that the crisis of democracy, the lack of trust and legitimacy in politics, might be self-correcting, as we've heard tonight. The political reality is, in a, is that in a democracy, if something is, is politically unsustainable, it will ultimately not prevail, and some form of political correction will be inevitable. The fourth implication is that the scale of the political disruptions elsewhere are a function of how politically inept the bubble-dwelling political class has been. And maybe by learning from that experience, we might hope that our own political class might glean what I think is not very profound, but is a crucial insight into political salvation and, and in the restoration of faith and trust in our democracy, which lies in really applying the simplest rule of retail politics, which is to seek to properly and fully respect and represent the democratic will of the people. Maybe the way to do democracy better is simply to do politics better. So I hope that on this optimistic note, you will please join with me in thanking our speakers for their contribution tonight.
Jeremy, thank you very much for that. And uh, thank you all of you for being here this evening. Now, our next events, I think Wednesday, no, Wednesday night next week, uh, the former High Court Justice Michael Kirby will be launching the memoirs of Geoffrey Lehman, who's uh, one of our nation's most distinguished poets and tax economists with a conservative disposition. That's on Wednesday night next week. The, um, the following Wednesday lunch, we have Brendan O'Neill, who's a guest of the IPA. Uh, he's the editor of Spiked Online. He's an old Marxist who's been mugged by reality. He'll be telling us about the perils of political correctness. And then on Thursday fortnight, so this time in a fortnight's time, we'll be having our Christmas bash open to all members. So if you're not a member, please become one. Thank you so much. And we hope to see you again. Great